speak about the connection between love and compassion and wisdom. How all of these qualities interrelate and in some way really are a part of each other. The first step in both the metta practice and vipassana is to calm the mind and collect the attention. It's gathering in the scattered mind. And so we practice coming back to the breath, to sensations, to sound, to the body. Practice resting in the awareness of whatever is arising. Coming back to the repetition of the metta phrases when the mind gets lost in proliferating thoughts. At times we are overwhelmed or overcome by what could be called multiple hindrance attacks, where it seems like all the hindrances are happening at once, or where we're caught up or lost in a torrent of afflictive emotions, that is, those emotions which cause suffering. But slowly, as we return again and again to the object of our attention, as we practice resting in the awareness of whatever is arising, slowly and progressively, our mind begins to gain some steadiness, some strength. It's less reactive, somewhat. Become somewhat less judgmental, or somewhat less caught up in judgment. We're not so totally lost in thoughts. We're not so completely carried away by that stream of discursivity. We're not so enamored of our own stories. As we abide in the simplicity of the moment, just in the truth of things being known, moment after moment. In the simplicity of the good wishes of metta, slowly our minds and hearts begin to relax, they begin to soften. (coughs) We become more open. And in this openness, in this relaxation, of the heart, what happens is that we see ourselves more and more completely. We see more different sides of ourselves. The wonderful poem by a Japanese woman of the, I think, 11th century or 10th century, her name was Izumi. She wrote, watching the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. In some way, that's what we're doing. As we steady the mind, as we collect the attention, as we relax the heart, we open to all the sides of ourselves so that no part is left out. In this process of settling, of relaxing, of opening to the different sides of ourselves, there's often, at least at times, a flood of thoughts and images and memories. You know, at first it's from the recent past and later it's from the far distant past. We remember things about our childhood that we didn't even know were still in our minds. As you may have seen during this time, there's a vast accumulation of impressions you know, that we carry. We may think of people that we haven't thought of in years, just sitting here quietly, you know, attending to our breath. We might start replaying old movies that we've seen, or old TV programs. <laughs> I went through a stint in India where <laughs> This was quite a few years ago, and so I was closer to the event, but not that much closer. 
where I was reliving all the episodes of Father Knows Best. (laughs) (laughs) They were dumb the first time. (laughs) (laughs) And they didn't get any better the second. (laughs) We remember kind of past incidents and past situations. It's all in there. You know, and as we sit and make space, all of these things, all of these impressions, all of these accumulations start to surface. And in the power of a still mind, we start connecting with these impressions in a very vivid and intense way. You know, things start coming to our mind and they're very alive, very present, precisely because we're being so present. We're actually more connected to them now, probably than we were when they happened, when we weren't so aware. One of the things that we notice very often is that as these impressions arise in the mind, either of people or situations, very often they carry the same reactions you know, that we had then. We may be reliving old arguments or old hurts and really getting caught up in that reactivity again. But something quite magical happens, and this is part of the process of the purification, that as we simply notice this, as we notice all the impressions and all the old associated reactions come up, with a softer, more relaxed, more open heart, we begin to see things with less defensiveness, with less projection. It's as if we connect with those people in those situations in a whole different way. Sometimes we remember the unskillful things that we've done, you know, and they can come up with tremendous vividness and with a attendant remorse, you know, where we really connect, yeah, that I really did that. We may have been quite deluded at the time of doing it, and now we're seeing it with great clarity. I, there's just one little story which illustrated this, which I won't go into at length. But it had to do with my Peace Corps days, and it's part of training killing a chicken. You know, being quite proud of myself at the time, and then later, years later, when I was in India and practicing, it all came back to me. You know, it, it was quite amazing, actually, because it was very, very intense. You know, when I really became conscious of what I had done, I was basically just take the life of another being. You know, and there was tremendous remorse when I saw it clearly, and it was so interesting that in all the previous years, I had never really considered it, because I had never really connected with the action. But in the meditation it came up, and I saw so clearly, you know, with the feeling of remorse about it, and that itself was a purifying aspect of the practice. It's like, by being clear, by being honest, by being connected with our past actions, we actually can let them go. We no longer carry them uh, in quite the same way. In the silence of mind, in the stillness, in the steadiness, there's a certain vulnerability that happens, you know, a certain kind of tenderness which allows us to see more clearly. And it allows us to see more clearly precisely because we're not so often or so much siding with ourselves. We're creating a space of awareness in which we're allowing things to be there in a space of equanimity, in a space of clear seeing. As this flood of memories and images, this general, what, what one person called a general house cleaning of the mind, you know, just kind of clearing it out, we find that we, at least at times, also become more forgiving. 
forgiving of ourselves, forgiving of other people, because we're not so caught up in our own point of view. We're not so identified with it. Now it's at this point, you know, as we engage or allow this clearing out process, something very nice begins to happen. Because in this state of openness and receptivity and softness, begin to notice that feelings of metta, feelings of goodwill, begin to arise more and more spontaneously. They begin to come out of the space of awareness itself. And then something else happens from another side. Not only do thoughts and feelings of metta begin to come more spontaneously as our practice deepens, there's a build-up of strength and of energy. And I'm sure you felt it at least at times during the retreat where there's just an amazing amount of energy that's conserved. Well, as this energy gets stronger, it begins to suffuse these spontaneous feelings of metta and goodwill. And so it gives them a tremendous power and a tremendous uh, force in our minds, in our hearts, and in our lives. There are times in practice when we really feel that metta, kindness, goodwill, benevolence, that all these feelings are coming from our deepest and truest place. And this is a tremendous antidote to the conditioning of self-judgment. You know, on a more superficial level, we're so busy judging ourselves and how we are and the kinds of thoughts we're having. But when we connect with this deep place within us, where we really feel right at the bottom, there is that sense of wishing well. That gives a, a tremendous sense of um, peace in our lives. We begin to see that metta, that loving kindness, is an expression of awareness. Loving kindness is really the basic energy of generosity in our hearts. Because it's simply wishing oneself and others to be happy. It's that simple wish, be happy. This feeling of loving-kindness of metta is not seeking anything back. It's not seeking any self-benefit. It's not saying, be happy if you'll make me happy. It's just, it's a movement outward. It's a movement of generosity. The simple, deeply felt wish, be happy. Now, loving-kindness, or metta, doesn't make distinction between beings, unlike the feeling of desire, with which metta is often mixed up and entangled and intertwined, but they're two very different feelings. Now, with desire, when there's love mixed with desire, it's always for a limited number of people. When we have desire for one person, or two people, or three people, maybe at one time, maybe serially. <laughs> but nobody has desire for all beings in this world. No. I mean, that would be a hell realm. <laughs> I desire everyone I meet. (laughs) But metta has precisely this capacity, and that's what distinguishes it from, one of the things that distinguishes it from desire. Metta can precisely embrace all beings, because there's no limit 
to this feeling or to this quality of generosity of the heart. We can practice wishing well to all. There's no problem. There's no problem at all in that. And there's one other aspect of metta that is quite amazing in contrast to the feeling of desire. And that is that it doesn't easily turn into ill will or jealousy. Now how often have we been caught up in desire for other people, other beings, and for a while it's going great, and then something changes, and all of that feeling of what we were calling love, but which was really mixed with desire, turns into anger, or ill will, or resentment, or jealousy. Metta does not turn in this way, and it doesn't turn because metta is not dependent on people being a certain way. Now this becomes very clear, and it, it became very clear for me when I was doing metta as an intensive practice, when I came to the neutral person. Now we went through the category, and I had been doing it for uh, weeks at a time, came to the neutral person, and I at first didn't even know who to pick. And, but I was living in India at the time, and my teacher said, well, you know, there's an old gardener at this vihara where we were staying. You know, do it towards, do it towards him. That was quite striking because here was this person who I passed many times a day every single day I was there and I had never given him a single moment's thought. And he could have been a telephone pole. And that was shocking. <laughs> really was. To, to all of a sudden realize that there was a being who had no impact you know, in my, in my awareness. And then I started doing metta you know, all day, every day. May you be happy. May you be healthy. He became my love object. <laughs> and what was so amazing about it was clearly nothing he did changed. That change of feeling all was within myself. You know, and it was a profound teaching. Very basic that how we feel about other people is up to us. It doesn't really depend on them. Even though we live often as if it does. We have the capacity, as you've seen perhaps a little bit in doing the metta over this time, we have the capacity to develop and generate loving feelings for everybody independent of how they behave and what they do and who they are, sometimes it's difficult, you know, and it may take some practice, but we have that capacity within ourselves. When we meet people who have really um, perfected this quality of metta, of loving-kindness, it is really amazing to be in their presence. You know, we had one teacher like that, which we probably mentioned during the week. Uh, it was a woman named Deepama, who was um, you know, this Indian Bengali woman who had studied in Burma with some of our teachers, and then we met her when she was back in India, in Calcutta. And she was just this amazing, amazing person. She married very young, uh, had a lot of tragedy in her life, lost her husband, lost two of her three children, tremendous suffering, then went into practice, and she had some kind of background from someplace, whether this life or past lives, but very quickly she attained very high realizations uh, of enlightenment, profound realizations of the Brahma-viharas, of metta, of samadhi, and she just embodied the wisdom of emptiness and the power of love. And it was amazing to be with her because she went through life basically blessing every being, every situation, everything she met. You know, so she'd be blessing dogs and trees and planes and people and, you know, be happy, be happy, be happy. That was, it was worth going to Calcutta to have her place her hands on your head, which was kind of the traditional blessing 
you know, you bow down, she just kind of stroke your head. And the metta would be flowing from her. It was amazing. It's so rare that we are loved so unconditionally, you know. And to see that that's a possibility. You know, we can develop this. And it takes practice and perseverance, but it's a potential within us. One of the things that gives metta its extraordinary power is that nothing is outside of its sphere. This is expressed by another Japanese poet in a very simple haiku. In the cherry blossom's shade, there's no such thing as a stranger. I really like it, the beauty of haiku, you know, just so simply. It expresses it, it captures it. In the feeling of metta, in the feeling of loving kindness, of basic good wish. We're not talking about some kind of cosmic flashing lights. It's just that basic, simple good wish for people, for all beings. There's no such thing as a stranger. There was one Tibetan teacher who, instead of saying hello, you know, how are you, his greeting would be, has your heart been kind? And when I read that, I thought, what a nice reminder. You know, just as we meet people, has your heart been kind today? It would be a, it would be a good practice for us. <laughs> so this feeling of metta of basic goodwill, which comes more and more spontaneously as we settle, as our minds become quiet, as we really connect with the deepest parts of ourselves. It makes our hearts and minds very soft, very pliable. And it's precisely this quality or aspect of pliability which makes metta, or loving-kindness, the ground of wisdom. Because when we're less reactive, when we're more patient with difficulties, either in ourselves or in the world, (coughs) then we're able to bring a much greater discernment to the situations and the actions that we find ourselves in. If we're not reacting, you know, the knee-jerk reaction to things, but there's a pliability of mind, then when we're in a situation in the world or we're experiencing something in ourselves, There's an ability, there's a patience to be with it and to say, okay, in this situation, what is the wise response? What is the wise action, the wise choice? And as we begin to make wiser choices, as we find we have the time to exercise this wisdom, we make wiser choices, we're happier. As we're happier, we feel more metta. As we feel more metta, our minds become softer and more pliable. As they become softer and more pliable, we make wiser choices. So it's just this spiral upward. Thich Nhat Hanh has a wonderful little uh, teaching here. He, he said, Buddhism, or the Dharma practice, is a clever way to enjoy life. <laughs> Happiness is available. Please help yourself to it. (laughs) As the feeling of loving-kindness, of benevolence grows in us, both through the practice of awareness, of greater acceptance of things, through the metta practice itself, then when we see or come into contact with being suffering, 
the natural response to that suffering is the urge or the wish to alleviate it. If we're coming from a place of love, or from a place of kindness, and we see or meet somebody who's suffering, what is the response? The response will be this wish, how, how can I help in this situation? And that's precisely the feeling of compassion. Compassion arises when we're in that loving space and we come close to suffering. Because it engenders in us this wish, this heartfelt wish, to see if we can help in some way or other alleviate that suffering. What opens us to this feeling of compassion, of wanting to help, in some way, in whatever way seems appropriate, what opens us to this feeling of, of compassion is our ability or capacity to come close to suffering. <coughs> you know, when we look about in our own lives and in the world, we see that suffering is pervasive. We don't have to look far to find it. You know, in whatever realm, whatever domain we're investigating, whether it's political situation in so many places, you know, where there's tremendous oppression, or the suffering of social and economic injustice, the suffering of, <coughs> you know, natural disasters. And the newspaper is just a, it's like a daily catalog, you know, of the suffering that exists in the world. How much suffering is there because of people's attachment to religious views? How many people have been killed you know, in the name of some religious belief? And it's clear that we don't even have to look out there. We just look at the nature of the body and mind and we see the suffering that's there. You know, the pain in the body. The enormous range of suffering in the mind. But right here is, there's an interesting paradox. Because if compassion arises from proximity to suffering, and it's true that suffering is all around us, why isn't there more compassion in the world? I mean, that's kind of a, you know, if proximity to suffering is the cause of compassion, and there is so much suffering, why is there not more compassion? When we look, both in the world at large, but more predominantly in ourselves, we find that very often we're not open to the suffering that's there. We're not willing to really open to it, be accepting of it, there's often avoidance, denial, distraction. Very often in the face of suffering, we become closed off. We become defended. We don't like to open to it. Why? Because it's suffering. Because it's painful. And so our conditioning very often is to do whatever we can not to feel it. But of course, this strategy is exactly what closes off the possibility of compassionate response. And it's interesting, as we observe this <coughs> defensiveness, the ways in which we close off to suffering, we see that it often re results, or sometimes results, in aggression, aggressive behavior as a way of not opening to the suffering, or sometimes despair. And we get caught in those tendencies. There's one, one of my favorite stories, which I've told often, but it, it's a classic example of denial, of suffering. It was told to me by a friend of mine who was describing a situation with his grandfather and father. His grandfather and father were driving in a car 
on December 7th, 1941, which was, of course, Pearl Harbor Day. And this announcement comes on the radio, you know, announcing the, the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And the first thing that the grandfather said to his father was, don't tell your mother. <laughs> World War II would have been a big one to miss. <laughs> yeah, it was so outlandish. And yet we do this. I mean, this... It's a funny story, but it's really to see how we are doing the same thing in so many ways. In all these moments of pulling away from suffering, you know, of avoiding, of denying, behind them all are deeply conditioned fears. Both in meditation practice and in our lives, what happens is that we reach edges, we, we reach boundaries of what's acceptable. This much is okay, this much is okay, but then we reach an edge and that's not okay, it's too much. I can't open to that. We become afraid at that edge, at that boundary of what we're willing to accept. And it's precisely at the boundaries. You know, and, and one of the, the beauties and powers of a meditation retreat is it just brings us right to the edge you know, of what we're willing to be with. That's just the place where the deeply conditioned fears begin to reveal themselves. In order to open to more love and compassion in our lives, which really means opening to the truth of suffering that exists, we need to investigate, we need to see really clearly how it is that fear arises. We need to understand both how it arises and how we can work with it in a skillful way so it does not become a limiting factor, a limiting force in our lives. And it's not enough to understand this theoretically. This is not a kind of abstract discussion you know, of fear. It's really in the specifics of each one of our lives. Where is it that fear arises? Are we noticing it? Are we aware of it? Can we work with it? It's possible to turn the awareness of fear into a very liberating understanding. This is a very juicy place to be working. For some people, you know, we all have our own, our own conditioned fears. For some people, it might be fear of discomfort, just not wanting to put themselves in uncomfortable situations. And so, you know, try to build a life defending against it. <laughs> I had one experience of this, which was a very, uh, very good teaching for me. I was in India at the time, and I was going up to Kashmir during the hot season, and we were on uh, one of these interminable Indian bus rides. I, I don't know, it was like 17 hours, it felt like five years. <laughs> yeah, and the Indian buses are very kind of crowded and noisy and packed and smelly and <coughs> really an assault you know, on all the senses. And I was sitting kind of right over the engine. Uh, you know, I'm quite tall and here I am kind of cramped in. And so I got onto this, you know, onto this bus with this determination, okay, I'm going to just be with my breath. <laughs> and I'm going to stay really concentrated and just keep all of this out. You know, because it was just too much. I, just, I didn't want to spend 17 hours dealing with all of that. And so that's how I kind of got on. And for the first couple of hours, that's what I was doing. I was just okay, in, out, in, out, in, out. <laughs> 
needless to say, it was completely exhausting. You know? So at a certain point, uh, my mind just was forced, really, to give up. And there was a very important shift right then. Instead of trying to keep everything out, what happened was that my mind decided, okay, let it all in. Just let it all in. Let the noise, let the rattle, let the smells, let the discomfort, let it all in. And then it all just kept washing through. It was like this river of unpleasant things. (laughs) (laughs) But when there was no resistance in my mind to them, there was really no problem. I was just kind of going with it, moving with it. And it was such a difference. You know, in my attempt to keep it out, I was creating a huge amount of tension. When I was willing to let it in, it got very easy. It's, it's just so interesting to watch how fear operates in our minds and how very often the things we do because of it are exactly what reinforces the difficulty. You know, often people are afraid of physical pain, not just discomfort, but real pain in the body. You know, and you've noticed, I'm sure, during these days, all the different ways, or some of the different ways, the mind deals with pain. Probably its first strategy is not to just sit back, okay, let me feel it. Probably not. Probably the first strategies are, I hate this. <laughs> and when will the sitting end? Or there's self-pity, or there's you know, a version of one kind or another. Fear. But what's really interesting about the fear of pain is that almost always it's not about the sensation in the moment. It's about fear of the anticipated pain. You know, maybe a very intense, <coughs> painful feeling in the moment, but we more or less can be with it. But then the mind gets on this loop, I'll never be able to endure this for the next half hour. And we get afraid because of that thought. But it's not really the fear of the moment's experience itself. One of the things that we learn in the practice, and it's very important in our lives, because at different times, for each one of us, pain will come. There's nobody who lives a pain-free life. You know, disease will come, the process of dying. How are we going to be with that pain when it's there? The experience on retreat can really help us understand and see the possibility of being with it in a non-fearful way. Instead of trying to keep it out, like I was doing on that bus, can we learn to let it in? There was a Sri Lankan monk. Very, He came to uh, IMS... I don't know, it must have been 10 years ago. Uh, and he was 93 then. I don't, know this, I don't know if he's still alive or not. Ananda Maitreya. Uh, he was a wonderful old monk. And he had the most delightful way of doing metta. He did it with the body scan. And with each part of the body, this is how he was teaching it to us. May my head be happy. <laughs> May my neck be happy. <laughs> May my shoulders be happy. And he just went through the whole body like that. He was so delightful. And this was so delightful. Because it just showed that there's another way to be relating to whatever it is that we're feeling. We can imbue the awareness of what's ever there, pain or discomfort or whatever, with the feeling of metta. That it's never, the problem is never in what's arising. The whole art is about the relationship we have to what's there. So we have to see this. We have to see the ways we relate that are not skillful, not helpful, and begin to understand that there are very skillful ways to be with things. Some people have fear of discomfort or fear of pain. Often there's a lot of fear of certain mind states or emotions. 
Now the Buddha said that suffering in the mind is much worse than suffering of the body because it's more consuming. With the body often we can get some kind of space around it. But when we're caught in the suffering of the mind, it's a very painful situation. And because there are many emotions which are painful, there's often a conditioned fear around them. Fear of (coughs) feeling anger or despair or loneliness or unworthiness or boredom or embarrassment or you know whatever it may be for each one of us those emotions which for one reason or another are not okay those emotions which we work to keep away to keep apart from ourselves which we defend against But what happens is that we start constructing our lives in order to avoid certain feelings. Well, that's a very defensive, limited way to lead one's life. And what we find in the practice, just as with physical pain, it's actually possible to learn how to relax behind afflictive, painful emotions. We don't have to pull away. We don't have to avoid. We don't have to run from them. They are unpleasant. That's true. The feeling of loneliness, the feeling of boredom, the feeling of unworthiness, whatever. And they are just feelings. (coughs) They come, they do their thing, and they leave. It's our resistance to them. It's our fear of them. It's our struggle to keep them out, which is... In fact, what empowers them. That's what's giving them energy. And so what we want to learn in the practice, just as we've learned with the body, with all of these mind states, all of these emotions, can we soften? Can we relax? Can we allow ourselves simply to feel them, to let them wash through? Often we have a great fear of the feeling of insecurity. That's a big one for people. And we don't like to feel insecure, and so we live our lives protecting ourselves from that. It would be interesting to observe how much of greed is rooted in the fear of insecurity. How much of what we do and try to hold on and grasp and get is because we're afraid of that feeling. give you a trivial example of this very deeply conditioned pattern. And this happened many years ago. It was a retreat I was doing in England with uh, Mahasi Saida, who was kind of the grandfather of this whole lineage of teachings. He was there with a few monks, and I was practicing. And every morning, uh, when I went down for breakfast, they had the same breakfast every morning. You know, they had porridge, toast, and fruit, and tea. So I went down every morning, took my bowl of porridge, two pieces of toast, piece of fruit, tea, ate. Finished everything, but one piece of toast was enough, so I put the second one back. Second morning I came down, took my porridge, two pieces of toast, fruit, and tea. Second morning, one piece of toast was enough, put the second one back. Third morning I came down, took my porridge, two pieces of toast, fruit, This went on for a week. And every single day, the one piece of toast was enough. And and after about a week, I thought, (laughs) okay, wake up. And I realized when I looked to see what was behind this, I saw that there was what I call the just-in-case mind. (laughs) It's like it was the fear that I might be hungry, which all that would mean is getting up and getting the second piece of toast. But it was so... I was so identified with it. Just in case I'm hungry, I'd better take it. You know? It's that basic fear that can run our lives. And as I say, this is a trivial example, but it's a very deeply conditioned pattern. You know, it would be interesting, just especially as you leave here you know, uh, in a couple of days, just to watch in your life for the just-in-case mind. You know, and let that be like a little mindfulness bell. You know, when you start doing something just in case, 
very often fears are initiated and fueled by thoughts of the future. Now we get lost in scenarios of potential disaster, either either our own personal disasters or disasters that can happen in the world. We get lost in these scenarios and then get very fearful. And they're particularly seductive, these thoughts, when they seem likely to happen. You know, so that, that even makes us more afraid. But in this, what's happening is that we forget that these are just thoughts happening in the moment. It's not that the situation or event is actually happening. We're imagining it. This is a possibility for the future. We're getting lost in that thought, taking it to be real, and it generates fear. And one of the stories of this, which I like because it provides a very useful mental label, is the story of that monk in a cave who was a very good artist. He painted this tiger on the side of the cave, and he was so good, and he spent so much time doing it. When he finished, it was so realistic, he looked at it and got frightened. Well, we're doing that over and over again. We're looking at these painted tigers in our minds. We look at them and get frightened or get entranced or whatever it is. Use the note painted tiger. You know, because it will just, yes, that's just a thought. It's tremendously liberating. It doesn't mean that we never respond to these thoughts. That is not the suggestion. Because sometimes responses are called for. But our response can be much more discerning when we're not lost in these thoughts. When we're not driven by fear. The Burmese uh, leader Aung San Suu Kyi, when she was released from house arrest uh, a little while ago, after six years, being under house arrest. She said the only real, when somebody asked her how she was and how she felt during that time, she said the only real imprisonment is fear and the only real freedom is freedom from fear. It's not in the circumstances. It's in the quality and the state of our own minds and hearts. For each one of us, different fears arise at different times. And they often create a situation of tremendous vulnerability. But it's exactly in that vulnerability that something quite transforming and magical can take place. I'd like to just share one story. Uh, quite a few years ago, I did a couple of sessions with Suzaki Roshi. And he's kind of the Zen equivalent of Upandita. You know, he's very tough, old Japanese Roshi. You know, and very demanding. And the Japanese form, the Zen form, is very tight and rigid and... You sit and you walk and you sit and you walk and everything's in a group and there's, there's really no time to kind of let off steam in a session, especially with him. And he used the koan method, you know, where you're given some kind of problem and you're supposed to n- go in not with an intellectual response but something demonstrating your understanding. We went in four times a day. Yeah. And so I'd go in, you know, the bell would ring and I'd go and do my bows I'd say my koan, give my answer, and he would just shake his head and say something like, "Mm, very stupid. (laughs) (laughs) And he had many variations on that. (laughs) And then finally I thought I was making progress. I went in one time and I gave my answer, and he said, oh, good, but not Zen. So after, and meanwhile, I'm getting more and more uptight in this situation, you know, because it's really a pressure cooker, and this was a very kind of charged thing. 
Uh, so finally he gave me, I think he had some compassion, he gave me an easier koan. <laughs> and so the koan he gave me was, how do you manifest Buddha nature while chanting a sutra? Okay, you know, chanting one of the Buddhist uh, discourses. And we had been chanting every day, so, okay, the, the response to me was obvious, you go in and you chant something. But what happened, and I don't know whether he knew this or not, it triggered this deep, deep, deep conditioning, which started in the third grade, <laughs> when my singing teacher told me, Goldstein just mouthed the words. <laughs> And since the third grade, and in ways that have been reinforced many times by some <laughs> of my dearest friends, <laughs> there's been this tremendous inhibition, you know, about singing. Okay, so uh, here I have to go in in this very charged situation and, you know, chant something. I was a total mess. I mean, I was there. So in the sittings before the interview, I'm sitting rehearsing and rehearsing and rehearsing and <laughs> a million times going over. I go in there and I'm really, you know, like that. I'm going in there and it's, it's a very formal, you know, pressured situation. He's been so tough all along. So I go in and I do my bow and I say the koan and I start trying to do this little chant, you know, <laughs> basically a line or two. But I got it all wrong. I mean, <laughs> It was just completely messed up, <laughs> and I felt, I felt so completely exposed and raw and inside out and vulnerable. It, it was just this amazing feeling of being totally exposed, you know. And he just looked at me, and he said, "Oh, very good." <laughs> and it was an amazing moment. It really was because. It's precisely because I was so open and exposed. It's like he really, literally touched my heart, you know, because there was nothing at that point which was defending it. And it was, it was one of those moments in life when we see that the heart can be touched. So there's a great possibility know, in these moments of fear, in these moments of vulnerability, if either by context or by practice, in some way we can hold it. You know, okay, this is okay. Even if it's tremendously difficult. So mindfulness helps gather our attention. You know, it helps stabilize the mind. It allows for the natural feelings of metta to arise within us. As we become steady, as we become more silent, this feeling of metta is transformed into compassion when we come close to suffering. And at the edges of what we're willing to be with, with the suffering, with the pain, we see the fears arise. You know, fear of pain, fear of discomfort, fear of certain emotions, fear of vulnerability, fear of insecurity, could be fear of death. So the question then is, how can we work with these fears? When they arise, how can we hold them skillfully? How can we practice holding them skillfully? So there are a few ways in which we can do this. First is, and the essential piece, is recognizing it. Recognizing the fear as it arises. And then seeing that it's possible to be accepting of the fear itself. And you can use that magic mantra, you know, it's okay, it's okay, let me feel it. How would you be with a very frightened child? No you'd probably be very present, very caring, very loving. You wouldn't be necessarily dismissing the fear, nor would you be blaming the child. You would just be there, you know, in a very loving, caring, accepting way. 
Now it's interesting that we can do this with a child, but it's so hard to do that with ourselves. Can we hold our own fear in that way? And what's really quite amazing in the process is as we do, we see that the fear begins to decondition, it begins to self-liberate because we're not lost in it, we're not wallowing in it, and we're not judging it. We're not denying it. We're just allowing it its space. And in that light of awareness, the fear is there, and it's there, and we feel it, and it's gone. We can allow fear and all the other afflictive emotions, we work the same way, we can allow them to decondition. There's, a, there's this Tibetan phrase, self-liberate. We can allow them to self-liberate when we can hold them in acceptance without identification, without taking them to be I or mine. We take the measure of the situation. It's another way of working with fear. You know, discriminating wisdom, sometimes in a fearful situation, it takes courage. It takes courage to be there, even with the fear. The Dalai Lama had some good advice for working with fear. Somebody asked him, how can we work with deep fears? He said, if you have some fear of pain or suffering, you should experience whether there is anything you can do about it. If you can, there is no need to worry about it. If you cannot do anything, then there is also no need to worry. (laughs) Sometimes it's really helpful to, to be in situations, to be right at that edge. The fear arises and to arouse the courage just to be there and allow the fear to be there. It's okay that it's there. We can still proceed. There was one Thai monk, uh, Ajahn Mun, who would send a very, he was one of these, one of these, one of those. <laughs> he would send his monks to practice out where uh, the wild tigers would come. You know, and he would say, okay, you just sit there. Well, be a little working with fear. <laughs> But the stories are quite amazing. I mean, just, you know, of people really going through it, coming out the other end. We may not feel quite inspired enough to sit in the face of tigers, but we all have our own edge. You know, it might mean trying to sit without moving for a bit. You know, what would it be like? And one of our teachers, we used to do this, vow hours, where we would take a, a vow not to move for a sitting it got really intense, where there's that resolution, let me sit, let me die, I'm not going to move. It called up a lot, you know, it really brought us to the edge. You could try that, and if not for an hour, it's not even how long you do it for. You could do it for 10 minutes, you know, or half an hour. But just to have that sense of courage, of determination, of strength of heart, let me do this and see what arises, and be willing to be with what arises. We want to also investigate the nature of fear itself. So that we see it as another empty, transparent, insubstantial, selfless phenomena. It's the fear which fears. It's not I, it's not self, it doesn't belong to anyone. Can we allow the fear and see it with that wisdom without building the skyscraper of self on top of it? Of seeing, yes, this is another arising appearance. There's a direct link between seeing clearly the experience of the emptiness of phenomena and the arising of compassion. And one of the great Tibetan masters of this century, Dilgo Kense Rinpoche. Uh, This is what he wrote about it. He said, when you realize the true emptiness of phenomena, 
you will spontaneously feel an all-embracing, non-conceptual compassion for all beings who are immersed in samsara's ocean of suffering because they cling to a notion of an ego. This troublesome ego, which is so concerned about itself, has in reality never begun to exist, it does not exist anywhere now, and so it cannot cease to exist. Not the slightest trace of it can be found. When you recognize the empty selfless nature, therefore any notion of there being an ego to dissolve vanishes, and at the same time, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns, uncontrived and effortless. Out of the understanding of selflessness, emptiness of phenomena, the wish, or the compassionate wish, to bring about the good of others dawns. And it dawns effortlessly. What this is called in Buddhist uh, teachings, this wish to bring about the good of others, is called bodhijitta. And bodhijitta is the aspiration, or the motivation, that our practice and our life be for the benefit and welfare of all beings. That we're not practicing just for ourselves. We can do our practice motivated by the wish to help alleviate the suffering in the world. And we start with ourselves, but we don't limit it to ourselves. And we make this the heart of our aspiration. You know, and we might not even necessarily feel this aspiration so fully now. We may like the idea of it, but really not be in that place. That's fine. We are where we are. We can have the aspiration to have the aspiration. You know, we can value this idea of bodhicitta, you know, so that slowly we cultivate, we nurture this motivation. And one way of doing it very simply, you know, when you, we come in often, kind of pay respects to the Buddha, is really at the beginning of a sitting, the practice of this wish of bodhicitta, may I be liberated for the benefit of all beings. So it's just it's watering that seed. And at the end of a sitting, we can dedicate the merit of our practice. May the fruit of this practice be dedicated to the awakening of all beings. Very simple things, you know, but just reconnect us with this very powerful force of bodhicitta. Ramdas's guru, Neem Karoli Baba, had a one-line teaching expressing bodhicitta, and very simple. He said, don't throw anyone out of your heart. You know, very simple, but it's really a life practice. Because this can become the bottom line reference point in our lives for all our relationships. Don't throw anyone out of your heart. And what this does is it reflects back to us all those times when we do, when we do separate ourselves, you know, when there is judgment, when we're not feeling loving. These things will all come. But if we have at the center of our aspiration, don't throw anyone out of your heart, it illuminates those moments. And so it brings the light of awareness to them. So we practice bodhicitta from two sides. From the side of developing love and compassion for ourselves, for benefactor, for friend, for neutral, for enemy, for all beings. We practice expanding that field of loving kindness, which is what we've been doing, to include all. And we also practice bodhicitta from the side of selflessness in which we realize there's no one there to keep anyone out. (laughs) 
one of our teachers, uh, Tulku Ergin Rinpoche, a Tibetan, uh, in talking about this, he said that relative bodhicitta is compassion. Absolute, absolute bodhicitta is emptiness. When these two are present, enlightenment is unavoidable. So this is our practice. This is what we're doing. Let's sit for a few minutes. I'd like to leave you with a poem by Wendell Berry. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.